Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Globalization has many critics on both sides of the aisle. On the right, advocates for global markets have lost ground to populists and nationalists over the past few years. On the left, however, things are less clear. While presidential candidates such as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have decried both America's trade deals and the influence of multinational corporations, support for trade and immigration among Democratic voters has never been higher. To explore this dichotomy and to hear the progressive case for globalization, I'm delighted to speak with Kimberly Klausing. Kimberly is a professor of economics at Reed College, where she studies international trade, international public finance, and the taxation of multinational firms. She has worked on economic policy research with the International Monetary Fund, the Hamilton Project, the Brookings Institution, and the Tax Policy Center. She is also author of Open, the Progressive Case for Free Trade, Immigration, and Global Capital, out last March. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, Delighted to have you here. Now, the progressive case for free trade, immigration, and global capital, how is that different from just the ordinary case for free trade, immigration, and global capital? Are there substantive differences? Yes, I think what's different about this argument is that it's not based solely around the efficiency criteria. So we often think of trade and immigration and global capital is helping markets function better and be more efficient and growing GDP overall. And what I'm arguing in this book is not only is that case quite strong, which it is, but even if you just care about things like equity and the well-being of the middle class and the typical workers and the poor, um, that at first glance that uh, free trade, immigration, and global capital are also good for those aims. But, you know, I would caution that, you know, all of the methods of economic integration do run the risk of harming some people. And so another argument that I'm making in this book is that it's important to accompany those global um, open policies with attention to redistribution and the larger sort of social policy context. So, so that's sort of initial case, sort of the efficiency case, uh, this will boost GDP case. Is Do you disagree with any of that? Or is a problem that uh, a lot of people, a lot of economists sort of don't get much beyond that case. And they think that once you've sort of made that case that, you know, you don't have to say anymore because that, that, that should, you know, that should overpower any objections. I agree with that case. I mean, I think uh, for the most part, you know, these types of global economic integration are, are really good for the economy as a whole. Um, but I don't shy away from noticing that, you know, there are big groups in the economy that aren't really feeling that the rising tide is lifting all boats. And what I caution um, is, against is sort of blaming trade and immigration for that feeling. Uh, you know, I, I do think that there are groups of people who've been hurt, for instance, by international trade, but there's a lot of elements of our capitalist economy that create job churn, that create disruption, that create income inequality. And my argument is that those are 
are things that we should deal with directly rather than hoping that by restricting trade or restricting immigration that we're going to have some sort of secondary effects that cause economic inequality. Uh, because I, I argue that that can actually make the situation for American workers worse if we sort of restrict trade and immigration in response to their concerns. Now, if all I knew about uh, what progressives, you know, folks on the left, uh, Democrats think about trade, if all I knew about that, was what I learned from watching the Democratic presidential debates. Uh, I would say that you had a very heavy lift with this book because the extent that any of these issues come up, uh, it's pretty negative. Yes, um, you know, or rather no, uh, they don't, uh, Democrats tend not to like the president's trade agenda, but it seems like uh, there's not much they've liked about America's trade agenda for a long time. Uh, there's you, you really don't hear much good about the uh, um, Pacific trade deal, which we elected not to participate in. Certainly nothing about NAFTA. Uh, they don't like NAFTA. NAFTA was a failure. It really is. Again, if, if all I knew is from those debates, it would sound like American trade policy has been an abject failure for decades. Uh, terrible for workers, terrible for the middle class, just an ultimate, ultimate failure. Uh, yeah, and, that's, and that's, think- that's that's so that is that. <laughs> That's wrong. Well, You're saying that's wrong. I'm saying that that's wrong. Um, you know, and I think that that's an error that, that both sides make. I mean, certainly President Trump in his campaign and in his presidency has sure. really echoed some of those exact themes. And so I think, interestingly, while this is often cast as a sort of Democrat-Republican issue, I think what it's really is is a centrist issue versus the extremes of both sides. You know, so there's sort of a, we tend to think of the political spectrum as sort of lining up from small government to big government or from market-friendly to market-hostile. But there's another dimension, which is sort of open versus closed. And I think that that dimension um, creates some different bedfellows than the other dimension um, in the sense that you see kind of the far left and the far right agreeing on sort of a more isolationist, more nationalistic economic policy aims, whereas there's people in the middle of, you know, of recent administrations, I think you can kind of point to people in the Obama administration and the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, who really share a sort of a a more friendly aspect, uh, sort of a more friendly attitude towards trade and immigration as, as a potential for, for good for both the United States, its workers, and of course the world. So, so you don't just to take NAFTA, which is, which comes up, which comes up in these debates and which uh, the president has sort of reworked and renegotiated. Do you think NAFTA was not the worst trade deal in American history? I think there's very little evidence that NAFTA has anything to do with the vast majority of concerns felt by the middle class or the poor. Um, if you look at, at the, you know, now two decades of sort of almost two decades of, of research on what's been going on uh, post NAFTA, there's just very little evidence of of big sustained effects on, on U.S. labor. I think it became a sort of a political tool and a, and a you know, a scapegoat really for a lot of anxieties that people were feeling. And that scapegoat uh, nature of the agreement was really sort of independent of what was going on with people's economic realities. It, it, and if you look at polling data, what's really interesting is, is uh, the sort of evolution and how people think about NAFTA and how the two parties thought about it even. So if you if you kind of go back about a decade and you ask people, you know, um, in 2010 or so, what what did they think of NAFTA? You know, the, the left and the right had pretty similar percent approval ratings if you, whether they identified as democrat or republican if you if you ask really recently interestingly the 
Democratic approval for NAFTA is, is much higher than the Republican approval. And I think it's partly because uh, voters take their, um, you know, their cues from what their leadership is telling them, right? So Trump has spent a lot of time, you know, uh, talking about NAFTA as the worst possible agreement. And so I think the Republican identity is sort of centered more around that, at least the voting, not so much in the elites, but in, among the voters. Um, and so you know, it's clear that, <laughs> you know, public opinion isn't always shaped by, you know, what's happening to people on a day-to-day -day basis. But certainly uh, it, it sounds like that, that, you know, that may be those polls, which may just be measuring whatever, you know, if you're, if you're a Democrat or on the left, you, may, you know, whatever sort of Trump's for, you're against, whatever he's against, right. you're for. But there, seem, there seems to be sort of a, a uh, kind of a deeper thing happening uh, on the left where, and, and again, this has probably always been there uh, among unions to some extent, but perhaps it's growing where there's just, where uh, as sort of Democrats move to the left and there seems to be this growing skepticism about capitalism as it's practiced in the United States, uh, the skeptic with about capitalism seems to be sort of also taking in a, a general skepticism about trade. And, and, and it sure seems like if, we get a Democratic president and Democratic Congress that there is going to be a lot of uh, skepticism about striking new trade deals uh, or that yeah, just doesn't seem I, where the party's going. I, I actually I, I would differ a little bit with the subtlety on this um, in the sense that if you look, for instance, at uh, the support for USMCA in Congress, you saw a lot of Democrats who were interested in getting that deal done, who sort of realized that um, throwing away NAFTA was ultimately going to be a self-destructive move. And, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, my book can contribute to the sort of battle of ideas and sort of explain to, um, you know, receptive people throughout the political spectrum that, uh, you know, it's probably in the best interests of the American middle class to not willy-nilly start trade wars and it, it destroy prior, prior trading agreements. So, I mean, if, if you look at the damage that's happened, for instance, over the last few years due to those kinds of actions, you can kind of see the points that I'm trying to make. One is that, you know, tariffs are actually a, a not just a consumption tax, but a regressive consumption tax that are paid disproportionately by um, the poor compared to other sources of government revenue. Uh, the point that creating new trade disruptions actually can hurt workers in the sort of manufacturing sector and throughout the economy because our exports industries get targeted for retaliation and also American companies' competitiveness often depends on global supply chains. So it's, you know, it's pretty hard to take tariffs and trade wars and sort of undo shocks that might have affected workers by putting up protection, but it's pretty easy to create new shocks and new disruption to U.S. workers. So one thing I hope that everyone can kind of learn from sort of looking at the last couple of years, but also looking at the intellectual arguments here is that if we want to help U.S. workers and we're sensitive to their sort of economic needs, we have to be a little more subtle than just sort of threatening to dismantle trade agreements and, and starting trade wars. There's a much more direct and productive ways to help them. And I, I discussed several of those ideas at, at the end of the book as different policy ideas that would be well, more effective than that. Would, would, a, would a trade skeptic on the left critique your book by saying, what you're offering is after, after, the, after the job is gone, after the job has gone to some other country, then you're gonna give me some retraining. 
or you're going to give me a wage subsidy for a couple of years, but that job is gone. Um, that, that to me sounds like that, 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 is, that is a possible critique you might hear. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think labor unions in general um, and representatives of labor are sort of reluctant to sort of say, you know, we don't want to be compensated for the jobs we've lost. We want to keep those jobs. Right. And, and that's a very legitimate feeling to have. But I would point out that, um, you know, there's a lot of sources of economic disruption. Take uh, computers and technology, for instance. You can easily lose your job to a robot or to automation or to the fact that it can be now done for free um, by, you know, uh, artificial intelligence or something like that, right? Um, and, and those sources of disruption are, are very real too. So I think what we need in our economy are powerful tools. And I suggest, for instance, uh, massively expanding the earned income tax credit that makes sure that when GDP is growing, that, that it really affects everyone in the income distribution. And then we don't have to worry so much about, well, is your job being lost due to a robot or is it being lost due to Walmart? coming into town and driving off your store? Or is it being lost due to, due to foreign competition? We can say, okay, well, regardless of what's buffeting the economy, we're going to make sure that when GDP goes up, um, it goes up for typical people too. And, and, and there's a lot of really powerful tools through the tax system and, and elsewhere. It's, I don't think retraining tends to be particularly um, effective, but I have seen evidence that you know expanding access to community college, uh, looking at uh, possible innovation and things like a wage insurance program, but, but also really direct things like expanding the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit and other things to sort of get money down the income distribution and, and reward work at the same time. You know, I think those are really useful responses. The problem with sort of tackling trade directly, which I think, um, you know, a lot of people might be tempted to say, okay, well, we should put up tariffs and try to get those jobs back, is I, I'm not sure that that's effective. You know, we've seen, for instance, over the last few years, as tariffs have been raised, and they have been raised substantially. So we're seeing, we're seeing an experiment happening. Yeah, we, right we've now. run this experiment, right? Yeah, we've been raising tariffs on products from China, but not just from China, but from elsewhere. We've raised tariffs on European goods, on Canadian goods, on, you know, on goods uh, with many of our trading partners. And it's hardly led to a sort of a, a you know, a reemergence of the sort of American manufacturing. On the contrary, we've, we've seen some businesses be hurt by those tariffs because they rely on inexpensive um, input goods that are coming from abroad. And when those input goods get more expensive, it, it actually kind of cuts into their ability to hire U.S. workers and to produce in the United States. Uh, you know, as, as just one example, General Motors paid a billion dollars in tariffs, um, you know, in, in the recent year. And, you know, this is the same time that they're closing plants in the, in the Midwest. You know, so I think um, you know, saying that restricting trade is going to be the answer to sort of the reclaiming the industries of yore, I think, is is incorrect and, and potentially harmful to the very same workers that you're trying to help with those policies. I mean, I think and I think what you're saying is that. I mean, sort of broadly, is that in a well-functioning economy. There's going to be disruption. And in fact. It's required you're, you, that mm -hmm. if without 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 there being some disruption, you're probably going to have a very stagnant stagnant economy. But we need to do a, a lot better job helping people uh, deal with that disruption. And it exactly. seems to me that where politics and then you can tell me if I'm wrong and I've totally mischaracterized your argument. But but it seems to me that where American politics American politics is is that you have more and more people saying we don't want disruption. We don't want disruption from trade. And we don't want disruption 
from uh, from technology. And it almost seems as if that right now, that right after you know protectionism and trade protectionism and trade barriers, the next step up is to try to protect workers from technology. Maybe we'll have robot taxes. Yes. That, it seems to me that that's where the kind of the momentum is. Yeah. And, and I, I guess I'm pushing back against that momentum. Right. I mean, I think you can complain about capitalism, you know, for the rest of time, but we don't have evidence that any other system works. Right. And, and capitalism comes with an incredible amount of creative destruction. Um, that doesn't mean we can't do things as a society to make a nicer capitalism, you know, helping, for instance, uh, uh, workers access health insurance, which is something that the Affordable Care Act uh, did quite effectively, helping sort of cushion people from disruption and give them access to the tools that they need to retool, like free community college, right? And there's a lot of ways that we can sort of chip in and make these, you know, destructive moments of capitalism less destructive. And I think it's really important to do that when you look at things like uh, the opioid crisis and the rise in suicide. You know, we, we do risk... <laughs> Uh, ignoring a lot of human harm that's caused by uh, job loss and job displacement. But I think it's very foolish to sort of say as a response to that, like, well, we need to stop um, capitalism or we need to stop uh, trading with other countries or we need to throw away our computers into the harbor like so much, you know, imperial tea. You know, I think those kinds of actions actually are, are kind of foolish, short-sighted responses that will ultimately make the middle class and the poor poor rather than, than directly addressing their needs. You know, and I, I think a yeah. theme of the trade literature and of economics in general is when you have a problem, you know, it's better to go straight to the problem rather than to do something that's extremely indirect and help and hope that that helps the problem, right? So in the case of climate change, you know, that, that's caused by carbon. So make carbon more expensive, right? Uh, don't tax imports from a country that you think is it might, <laughs> you know, somehow contribute to the, the problem. I mean, I, you know, I guess I'm not against, you know, uh, carbon adjustment on the border, but what I would say is that any problem that you have, if you go straight to the, the problem itself, rather than taking these really indirect swipes at foreigners. You know, I think that that's a, that's a more productive and helpful. Does, does, does the, uh, um, and, and just talking about the trade bit, does, this, does that apply, you know, if we're talking about Canada or Mexico yes. or even someplace like Vietnam, but does, it, should, should, does the case any different when dealing with a country like China where it, they don't, it, it doesn't seem to be, I mean, to the extent that we, we hoped it would become a more open society, it seems to be going in the other direction. There's a massive national security implication in our relationship. Does that change the case at all? Thinking about, thinking about China's kind of a, it's, it's different than those other countries because they're a potential sort of geopolitical rival, competitor threat? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind, I, I guess, is the counterfactual. Like we'd love for China to be a somewhat more open society and, and there's human rights concerns, you know, with respect to the Uyghur population, for instance, and, and in Hong Kong and elsewhere. And, and those are very real and important concerns. So, so then the next question is, okay, if we have these real and important concerns about a country, what is the most effective way to encourage change or to work um, in a collaborative way <laughs> with allies to sort of exert uh, pressure or soft power to sort of improve the situation. And, 
if, if you look at the last few years, you know, I would argue that threatening China with trade wars, implementing higher tariffs on many of their products, facing the retaliation when they then tariffed our products, hasn't done one bit to, to address the very reasonable concerns that we might have about aspects of, of China's government's decisions. So, you know, sometimes we're left with an imperfect reality where, you know, perhaps the more constructive thing to do would have been to work with a bunch of allies, like we had a group set up to adopt the Trans-Pacific Partnership in part out of these concerns of having sort of a, a set of allies that could respond, you know, in, in sort of soft power ways to concerns about intellectual property, for instance. Wouldn't it be more effective to, to work with Europe and with our, our Trans-Pacific Partnership allies on addressing these Chinese intellectual property concerns than to alienate those two groups uh, by withdrawing from the TPP and by threatening Europe with various <laughs> trade war actions. You know, it, does that make us more effective in negotiating with China? I would say the contrary, right? So I think sometimes there aren't sort of perfect policy answers to problems, but there are better and worse things that you can do. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm in favor of sort of building up alliances and friendly relations with countries. And I also think economic interdependency, you know, can be a good thing that ultimately uh, reduces the probability of war and conflict, even with those countries that we but might. Certainly, find but there certainly is a movement to, to do just the opposite. That right. What and we I actually should be doing that. is yeah. decoupling our economy from a yeah. country which seems to be, again, becoming more authoritarian, mm -hmm. uh, becoming this kind of totalitarian um, surveillance state. And we should be doing nothing to help them um, boost their economy, boost their technological prowess. In fact, we should ideally we should try to isolate them from the global economy as much as possible uh, until until such time as they decide to open their economy and make it more market and open up and open up their government and make it more democratic. And that's and anything else, we're we're just giving aid and comfort to a <laughs> yeah. um, to an enemy. Well, I, I think calling China an enemy is somewhat unfair to our the historic relationship between our countries. Um, you know, there's a lot of really productive relationships that we've had with China over the past. And, and I don't think we should attempt to prevent, you know, the economic rise of a country that's managed to lift, you know, over... 800 billion people from below the World Bank poverty line to well above the World Bank poverty line uh, through their um, uh, substantial economic growth, right? I don't think that economic growth is actually harmful to the, to the future of the world. I guess the question is how much power does the U.S. have to shape the Chinese government decisions about what type of state to be and, and what's the most productive way that the U.S. can engage with China um, to avoid, you know, serious international conflicts that are unnecessary while, you know, nudging China toward a better um, reality. I don't think threatening them with trade wars is, is going to be effective at achieving those goals you know, of, of making China a more open economy. On the, on the contrary, I think you're going to sort of see um, more nationalistic sentiment in China, more sort of rallying around uh, the flag and around that authoritarian government, you know, because the U.S. is threatening 
you know, the economic growth and the prosperity of China. And China can use this as a moment to sort of argue like, look, you know, to scapegoat the United States, you know, our, our government isn't at fault for the kinds of, you know, repressions that you might otherwise chafe against. Right. The U.S. is trying to prevent our rise, you know, so I think we have to be careful about unintended consequences. Do you... Uh... I know that uh, a lot of you know people you know on the right who are you know, you know think capitalism is a pretty good thing, and they will point to the way that uh, how China has opened its economy um, to uh, you know trade with the West and investment, and how it's brought all those hundreds of millions of people out of deep poverty, and will say, see, you know, that's just a very clear example of why capitalism and trade are a good thing. Do people talk like that uh, on the left? That hey, you know. Capitalism can be great. Look at how it, it, it's, it, it brought all those people out, out of poverty. Is that an argument you hear much? I certainly hear it in the circles that I travel in. Um, you know, if you go to economics conferences where I would say that, you know, the vast majority of, of economists tend to support people in the center left um, on average. You know, people Do you are hear well it among your fellow professors who aren't economists? Uh, the fellow professors who aren't economists, I think, can be persuaded pretty easily by looking at, at facts uh, on the ground. You know, I think there's this really nice uh, website called Our World in Data, um, and I'm often um, tweeting or retweeting uh, insights that, that come from that website that shows so I. The, the massive <laughs> amounts of economic progress that we've seen throughout the world. And and I do think that one of our goals for for everybody on the right and the left who sort of thinks about these social problems carefully and is open and receptive to ideas. You know, I think one of our, our, our objectives with things like this book and this conversation is to sort of change hearts and minds by, you know, careful analysis of data, argument, and reason, right? You know, and I think there's, there's room for the left and the right to work together on, on some of these issues. You know, there's, we don't have to be in this sort of, <laughs> you know, uh, fight to the death, you know, of, of, of tribalism that you see often, you know, uh, infecting our politics, right? You know, I think that there's, there's a lot of mutual gain to be had from sort of thinking about, well, how do we address these real problems that are faced by the poor and the middle class in America while also keeping like all the great things about capitalism and openness that we've come to love. And I think that that's gonna be the real challenge for all of those in, in the middle and the center left and the center right, just to sort of come together and find an effective way to govern that isn't all down to, you know, these sort of petty tribalism. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me just finish with the immigration uh, part. I think if you asked a lot of Republicans, what do you think the progressive case for immigration is? I think their answer would be uh, to have a lot of immigrants come into this country uh, who will then vote for Democrats? That is that is the progressive case for more immigration. Is that your case, or is it, is it something else? Oh, on the contrary, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that you can look throughout U.S. history um, from the beginning to now, and it's quite obvious that immigrants have been a force for good over and over and over again in terms of innovation, in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of economic growth, in terms of raising the wages of native-born Americans at the same time by complementing their skills. So there's a very strong sort of economic case for immigration that's based around the efficiency associated with taking somebody who's not being productive in their 
home country and moving them to the United States where they have all of these great resources and institutions and infrastructure to work with. And, and we've reaped that gain in a lot of ways. If you look at um, US Nobel Prizes and scientific fields, they are, um, we, we tend to win uh, the majority of all Nobel Prizes in scientific fields. But in recent years, we, we should also note that over the last four decades, a majority of our Nobel Prizes are actually to foreign-born researchers who are working in U.S. universities. Um, and, and you can also look at, at trends in business startups. Half of our billion-dollar startups have an immigrant on their founding team. 40% um, uh, of our Fortune 500 companies were either founded by an immigrant or an immigrant's child, right? So we've got this sort of long tradition of, of scrappy, hardworking immigrants coming to the United States and, and making a better life for themselves, but also a better life for those around them. And I think the data are really clear on that. How, how do you understand, as we sort of wrap up, how do you understand the data and what does the data say about the impact of uh, immigration, low-skill immigration on the wages of lower-skill uh, native-born workers in the United States? Yeah, so I think the, the vast majority of studies find very little um, effect um, of low-skilled immigrants on low-skilled workers. There are a, a handful of studies that find the potential for some negative effects, but there's also, those studies have been often uh, critiqued and rethought um, elsewhere. And, and there's a nice experiment, actually, if you look at the Mariel Boatlift, which is when the uh, uh, for a brief period, uh, Cubans were allowed to emigrate to the United States and, and increase the population of Miami um, substantially and increase the low skill workforce in Miami substantially. And, and, um, and it's a nice policy experiment because no one anticipated it. It sort of happened overnight. And you can use that experiment to sort of say, well, what happened to the wages in Miami? And after looking at it, re-looking at it, and re-looking at it again, um, there's just there's very little evidence that that big influx of, of low-skilled labor harmed and, uh, native-born um, Americans living in Miami. So that's that's just one example, but in general, the literature is pretty positive here. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't find, you know, a person or two who's hurt by this, but the efficiency gains in immigration are so large that really, I mean, throwing out a lot of uh, beneficial things if you restrict immigration in response to the concerns of, of just a tiny subset of the literature here. And for the people who don't benefit um, your, uh, your main sort of policy approach just very briefly would be what? Is it wage insurance? Is it something, I mean, yeah, so I you think may mention the, the EITC. Is, what, what, what would it be? Yeah. I think if I could do sort of one, <laughs> well, let, let me do two things. If I could do two things, one would be sure. to ex expand the earned income tax credit to really get more money um, to those people, especially those who are childless who don't really see, receive much benefit from the earned income tax credit. This can create negative tax rates at the bottom of the distribution. That's really important. Um, but another thing I think that we need to do better at is making investments that really complement our workers, investing in research and development, investing in infrastructure, investing in community college and, and pre-K education, both. You know, I think those are areas where the, the marginal um, social benefit of additional gov government spending is quite high and where, where additional spending should really um, help the prospects of, of American workers throughout the income distribution. And to wrap up, based on what you've seen sort of so far uh, and what's happening, you know, on the left and the Democrats and what they've been saying, you know, at these debates, what they've been saying out on the, the stump in various states, have you become more or less optimistic 
that the Democrats, if they take control in Washington, will pursue a more open policy. Let's call it a, uh, a, a drawbridge down policy as opposed to a drawbridge up sort of approach. Yeah, so I think there's um, quite a bit of variety uh, across the Democratic candidates, so it's a little bit hard to generalize. Um, but I think, for instance, if you sort of imagine a, a world, um, let's say Joe Biden becomes president and, and the Democrats get the Senate and the House, I do think that that, that policy scenario is one that, that could turn out to be quite favorable for equitable growth for making sure that, that there, there's economic growth and there's openness, but also that that growth is shared kind of throughout um, the broader society. I worry a, a little bit about some of the, you know, most, um, you know, left candidates in, in their perspective on these issues. I think, for instance, if you look at the Sanders campaign and their thoughts on trade and immigration, I think they're not particularly um, sophisticated. So if we sort of imagine that, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat less optimistic, but, you know, I think part of the goal with, of the book and in general is to just sort of give people the information, regardless of where they are on the spectrum, to sort of think about the arguments and the data, you know, surrounding trade and immigration in, in a more thoughtful way, in a less sort of reactive and ideological way. And I think, I think on both sides of the political spectrum, there's, there's work to be done there. Kimberly, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.